0: Would you all please stand for the reading of God's word? This is from Mark 15, 33 through 39. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? saw that that in this way he breathed his last he said truly this man was a son of god this is the word of god you may be seated
1: well we've been in the gospel according to mark for over two years on and off and fits and starts and we've come to the cross come to the death of jesus um And if you know anything about Christianity, um, you know that the cross is an important image in Christianity. Uh, It's behind us every time somebody steps up on the stage. If you think of a Christian church, you probably think of crosses adorning them. Probably, if you think of Christians, uh, sometimes you might think of people who wear crosses around their necks. Uh, If you were a Christian in the 90s, you might think of a lot of bad Christian t-shirts with crosses Inappropriately placed on brands or something like God bucks coffee or something, and there's like a cross there. I don't know. God help us. Um, the cross is an internationally recognized symbol, but of what? What is the cross? What is it? What does it mean? What does it mean when you see that thing, that little symbol? Sometimes it's interpreted as a tool of warfare. You think of the, the, the dark, dark time of, of the Crusades. Christians putting it on their swords and shields and their armor. An image of conquest. Image of violence. Sometimes it's wielded as a political symbol. Adopted by the political left or the political right as a shorthand for Jesus. just so happens to agree with us and our platform on every point. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you believe it? Sometimes it's a fashion accessory worn by people who don't really care or have much thought about it. Sometimes it's an ironic joke. Sometimes it's a sign of an austere and cold God when you see a cross. Something something cold about that. Well, Mark's going to give us, he has been giving, and he's going to continue to give us his answer this early disciple of Jesus, this one who, who built this, this ancient account of the life and ministry and death and, yes, resurrection of Jesus. He's going to tell us his version, and we're going to come under it today. So let's pray. Let's pray and see what he has for us. Lord, we need you. For those of us in this room who are followers of you, God, who are followers of you, Jesus, it matters more than almost anything in this world, that we understand and represent this cross the way you would have us. It has been twisted. It has been distorted. It will continue to be. And we beg of you, God, in your mercy, that you would make it not so with us. Help us to see this, this crazy event for, for what you would have us see it. Help us to understand, not just understand, Lord, but help us to know you through it and to love you on the other side of it, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm getting a little self-conscious as we've, you know, the season of Lent has coincided with uh, the season of, like, the passion uh, in the Gospel according to Mark, and, like, there's just not a lot of room for levity in these sermons, you know? I'm more used to getting up here and like having a joke or something to kind of tee this off, but anytime I try to write like in my sermon notes, like, oh, what if we kind of lighten them? It's, it's not right. It doesn't feel right. We're talking about the cross. We're talking about Roman torture. We're talking about if the gospels are to be believed the, the most horrific but also beautiful at the same time act of cosmic justice that's ever been performed. Um, so I apologize, but I, we're in Lent. It's all right. It's okay to be be kind of grim and down There's also much to celebrate in this We'll get there So what we have here is obviously it's it's the same story the continuation of last week that Chris Nye so beautifully opened up for us as uh, he, he Told the story of Jesus getting to the cross and some of the key events there But now we get to the moment what you might call the final forsaking Of Jesus and this is fascinating this is fascinating especially to think about in light of the road of tragedy that brought Jesus to this moment that we've we've been working through over the last months so we remember we remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane bearing his soul before God his sweat like drops of blood his agony as he was staring down this moment that we've now gotten to and in that garden there was this you know, the sense of him wanting his disciples to be physically close so they could empathize with him and so that they could help him shoulder this burden in some small way. They could at least be close to him through it. So Jesus could experience the empathy of, of a close friend at least grieving alongside him. But just as he predicted before that event, once the rubber hit the road, once the soldiers came to, to, to hand Jesus over to be crucified, everything changed. Those who swore they would be faithful to him to the end, they they ran away. Those who promised they'd remain close to his side, they they wanted nothing to do with him. Even Peter, who was so adamant, when the rubber hit the road, he found himself denying Jesus three times. So Jesus' own disciples, and then Peter, the sort of leader amongst the disciples, they abandoned him. They rejected him in his hour of deepest need. Then there's the religious leaders, those who experts in the scriptures, though they were, hated this Jesus. Though we would declare this Jesus was the physical incarnation, the human embodiment. Do you want to know what God is like in human terms? Let's translate the God, this abstract, transcendent God of the universe into human terms that we can understand. Who is it? It's Jesus. This is what he looks like. This is who he is. This is the best and clearest revelation of this God we will ever get. Those who should have been experts, who should have seen him, said, we hate him. Kill him, kill him, kill him. him." The crowds, the crowds who earlier in the book were excited about Jesus, following him around, celebrating him even just one week prior on Palm Sunday celebrating him as perhaps the Messiah, perhaps the son of David who was going to come and put everything right in Israel. They now find themselves being riled up to call for his crucifixion. Torture him, the crowds declare. Torture him. You've got Pilate. Roman, Roman governor who, who senses that something is off here. He knows that justice isn't exactly being done as Jesus is being uh, set up for this crucifixion. He doesn't have the courage to stand. He doesn't want to rile up the crowd any further. He even publicly, one of the gospels tells us, washes his hands before the crowd and says, this blood's not on my hands. And he steps out of his duty to let the mob do what it will, make the decision that it will. There's the guards who take Jesus, as we read about last week, they beat him, they fashion a crown of thorns to mock him, they press it into his head so that the blood drips down. They scourge him, they whip him, they flay his skin. And then we have even the robbers, Mark tells us, the other two people, the other two men crucified alongside Jesus, even they get their shots in. And if you remember from the other gospels, uh, one of them ends up repenting on the cross and uh, coming to faith and asks Jesus to, to remember him as he comes into his kingdom, but not at first. Even, even the two crucified alongside him get in the spirit of this. If we hate this guy. We mock this guy. We throw shame on this guy. So that's Jesus. That's Jesus. And even this little episode that this story captures here, this is kind of a weird one, this Elijah thing. So, so Jesus cries out, and it captures the, the Aramaic for us, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Um, they hear that Eloi, and they think, probably because he's got a weak voice. Imagine how tired and how weak and how anguished Jesus is. They think he's using the Hebrew uh, Eli for Elijah. That's a shorthand for Elijah. They think he's calling for Elijah as they're trying to hear what he's saying. And this little episode, is, is it demonstrates just how alone he is because what, what's happening is his cry out to his father. God is misunderstood, misdiagnosed by the bystanders in different cruelty as they <laughs> they're treating Jesus as some kind of science experiment. See, the idea was that uh, Elijah is one of the figures who was, according to the Old Testament, taken up. He didn't actually die. God took him up. And the idea was that Elijah potentially could come down and help Faithful Jews, if they called out to him, Elijah could come down and help them, rescue them too from their tragedies and from their traumas. So they thought, whoa, he's calling Elijah. And look at this, they say, look, let's see. Let's just see if Elijah comes and helps him. Give him some of this this sour wine, which I was, one thing I read, actually the consistent thing that I read in the the scholarship was that this was kind of like the Gatorade of the day. Sort of gave like an energy boost. Like give him some of that stuff so he'll live a little bit longer. We'll see if Elijah will come down and help him. This is cruelty. This is dark, friends. Treating Jesus as some science as a science experiment. Ooh, let's see if Elijah comes. Let's see. Let's keep him alive just a little bit longer. See what happens. Munching on their popcorn, could imagine. So it's tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy that gets Jesus to this moment and then there's the agony of the cross itself. The agony of the cross itself. After being whipped and then having a crown of thorns pressed into his head and being beaten, Jesus had to probably carry the heavy horizontal piece of the cross on his back, on his own. Uh, He had to carry his own torture device outside of the city to the place of his execution. The place we, we learned last week was called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. So flayed, bleeding, exhausted, having carried this thing, and at one point he even had to have the help of another person help carry the cross. He gets out to the place of his execution and then he was most likely nailed to the cross, as, as all of us understand, with three or four nails through his wrists and his feet. He probably would have been given a little block that would have been nailed to the bottom of the cross for his feet to rest on with his legs bent. The idea being, whenever you're on the cross, one of the most common ways that you die is through suffocation. You're hanging in your chest can't get enough air, so they leave it where you, can, you actually have the ability to pull on your arms and stand up with your legs, and so you can take a breath can open up your chest cavity and breathe. It's designed for cruelty, once again. They'd have to pull up through these nails to take a breath as things kept going and got worse and worse and heavier and heavier. And if that wasn't enough, we sanitize this in our depictions, I think, for good reason. We're trying to to give Jesus a little bit of the dignity that he was denied, but in our depictions, we don't depict him this way. He was absolutely naked. No tasteful loincloth covering him. He was naked. This is because the Romans wanted both the maximal physical pain, but more than that, the maximal shame and humiliation to make the cross as much of an absolute deterrent as possible. Don't do what these guys do, or this will happen to you too. Or this will happen to you too. We have to note here, the cruelty of the crucifixion was a human invention. The crucifixion, the cross, and the horror of this, the absolute horror of this, is a picture, it's a window into the possibilities that lie dormant within the sin-stained, sin-broken human heart, as if to say, we do this to each other. This is what we do to each other. We invented the cross. We invent other things like it all the time. It was humanity's own cruelty that God used to atone for humanity's sins. Jesus stepped into this, one of the worst tortures that humanity had devised up to this point. Jesus said, I'll take that, I miss that. Jesus took it willfully. And so now, forsaken, abandoned, punished, judged by his God, and Father, in this way, using the worst that humanity has to offer, we, we see this other thing. We see that this darkness, the heaviness of this, the tragedy of this, the, the just absolute darkness of this is made physically manifest. Verse 33, the sixth hour had come. That's, that's noon. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And we don't know the extent of this event and that none of the other gospels give much more description rather, uh, over this. So we don't know exactly what this looked like, but it was a notable darkness observable to anyone in the land. And if you know your Old Testament, you would know darkness, a supernatural darkness, always signified the judgment of God. Think of the ninth plague over Egypt in Exodus 10, the plague of total darkness in their land. Or more specifically, think of the prophet Amos, chapter eight, verse nine. He speaks of a climactic judgment day that's coming when, quote, on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon. Sun will go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. The cosmic weight of the justice of God coming down onto the sins of the whole world, but not just in some abstract way, but focusedly, pointedly onto the Son of God who was its bearer. And in that moment, the eternal fellowship, and theres we have to speak of this with mystery here, but the eternal fellowship of this Father and this Son is in some sense ruptured and distanced and broken It's almost as if it's just so intense, and so heavy, and so tragic that there had to be a physical manifestation of that heaviness and tragedy. A supernatural darkness is in the air. We should pause for a moment, and only for a moment, to speak about the meaning of this event, at least in these terms. If you know anything at all about Christianity, again, you probably know that a very important part of Christianity is that Jesus died on the cross for people's sins. Uh, To use more theological language, you could say Jesus atoned for sin on the cross, which is also biblical language. He covered the debt that sin produced, and he restored the relationship between God and his people on this cross. And tons of ink gets spilled you know, by biblical scholars and theologians trying to unpack the mechanisms uh, of this and what, what are called theories of atonement. So we say, okay, pretty much everyone agrees Jesus' death was for the sins of the world. It was to deal with the sins of the world. But then you have to, how? How does this guy dying and suffering on this piece of wood, what, what does that have to do with the s- sins that Cameron Hager has committed in the year 2023 in Portland, Oregon. Like, What's the connection? So people think about this, and they write about this, and they debate this, and they wrestle with it, and they chew on it. And what they come up with are called different theories of the atonement, theories of how Jesus atoned for the sins of the world. The Bible has so much to say about this because the cross, as, as you might guess, is the fulfillment and the culmination of so many biblical ideas and themes and threads. But I just want to leave you very quickly with four and to just footnote this. My favorite book on the atonement is this book called uh, The Mosaic of the Atonement by Josh McNall. And what's so brilliant about his book is that in these debates, so many Christians, they say, well, here's the, here's the theory of the atonement and all to the exclusion of all the others. And McNall is just pointing out, look, the way the Bible talks about the atonement is multifaceted, and if you try to make any one of them just the only way in which the atonement can be understood, you're just missing out on so much that the Bible has to say. You're, short, you're short-sighting the cross. And so he highlights these four that he thinks are kind of the main umbrellas under which the rest fall under. So bear with me for a second. This is going to be brief. It's, frankly, this isn't the point of this text, but I think, I think uh, it's still important. So four, four theories of the atonement that I think you can make a very strong biblical case for. Four things that are un- underpinning, like, what is happening in this scene? Number one, recapitulation. Big word. Jesus takes up the stories and the roles of both Adam and Israel and serves as the truly faithful representative who can redeem the others. So he is the new Adam. He is the better Adam. And he is the new and better and faithful Israel. He does what, what we cannot, what Israel cannot, what humanity cannot. As our representative in our place, he recapitulates. He takes up their stories and becomes the one who can redeem the others then as their representative through his death and resurrection. That's one. Number two, theologians call this Christus Victor, Christ the victor, the victory of Christ. Jesus defeats and emerges victorious over Satan, that great enemy of God, even over sin, even over death itself through his death and resurrection, allowing us to share in his victory. We get the spoils of his victory by our association with him. That's number two. Number three, penal substitution. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago in the story of Barabbas, which just pictures it so powerfully. But Jesus substitutes himself in for sinful humanity, bearing the punishment and consequences that sin has earned them while also giving away his perfect righteousness to them through his death and resurrection. And then a fourth we might call moral influence. Jesus' death serves as an inspiring, motivating, drawing act that results in genuine change inside of those who see it and trust it for what it is. You can't get an honest look at the cross. You can't really see what's going on there without going, oh my goodness, this is doing something to me. So that's it. I just didn't want us to leave Mark without at least footnoting some of these important ways theologians understand the atonement, but I I, want to make it very clear that this is not the point of this text. If Mark wanted to give us a theology lesson on these things, he would have done that. No, what he highlights for us is the experience. He doesn't necessarily hear, and you know, maybe that's what the book of Hebrews is for, that's what the book of Romans is for, and so on, but here, he wants us to feel our way through this, rather than think through it. He wants us to experience it, to feel it alongside Jesus, more than to just stop and try to explain it. So Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In his moment of total anguish, as he is atoning for the sins of the world, he cries out using the words of this well-known psalm, Psalm 22, if you didn't know that. Your Bible probably has that footnoted. So the, the, the opening lines of Psalm 22, Psalm of David. So in this, which theologians speculate, perhaps the moment of moments where he is most fully tasting what we described as the cup, the cup of the justice of God, when he's having his full sip of it, when he is abandoned and alone from the one person he can't do this without. You know, Jesus can He could go to the cross without you and without me and without Peter and without John and without any of these people because he was close to his father. But in this moment, he cries out, I'm abandoned by my God. This is the climax of his suffering. This is is the meaning of hell itself, the separation from God and the God who is the source of every good thing. And what we see here, once again, is that Jesus doesn't have to pretend to be stoic. He doesn't have to say, and I'm fine with this. I'm very strong. I'm very tough. Even this is not too much for me. No, Jesus cries out. Some even say that word for crying out With a loud voice, you could translate it, he shrieks out. This is not calm, peaceful reflection on what's happening to him. He's grieving, he's moaning, he's calling out. It's not glamorous, it's ugly. Everything about this is ugly. And he laments. And as someone who knows his Bible, he finds just the right words in the words of David in Psalm 22. David writing about some time in which he felt forsaken by God. Jesus himself uses these words. And we see that what David, <laughs> what, whether he knew it or not, David was prefiguring what was going to happen to the Messiah, his heir. So Jesus laments. We can lament, friends. Sometimes the only thing you can do is just cry out and mourn. And that's not weakness, it's accuracy. And it's an honest accounting of what you're going through. That's what Jesus models for us here. But listen to the words. Listen to the words here of Psalm 22. I'm, I'm going to read 21 verses here. It goes on for another 10. There's 31 verses in Psalm 22. But this is how Jesus is articulating just t- these few phrases. He's dialing us into this larger picture of Psalm 22 that I think captures the heart of what Jesus is experiencing. This is poetry. Let's let it hit us as Poetry. Psalm 22, starting in verse one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you our fathers trusted. They trusted, you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb, and you made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a post herd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evil doers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. From my clothing they cast lots. But you, O oh Lord, do not be far off. O oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. The psalm goes on and it it concludes with a note of like, yes, God will redeem, he will vindicate. David announces his calm confidence that yes, God will put things right. Jesus doesn't experience that. Jesus takes it all the way to the end. There's no Calvary coming. There's not gonna be relief. There's no peace. There's no hope. There's no joy. All Jesus says is, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Even in that cry, note the way Jesus still models this faithfulness. He cries, he shrieks out to God for turning from him, but he doesn't do so through rejecting God, screw you God, or whatever. He says, my God, my God. God He will not let his God go even in this moment. Verse 37 Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. He died. He died. The final forsaking of the Son of God. Alone, cosmically alone in death. And then something else happened verse 38 <clears throat> the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom there's this it could it could have been an outer curtain possibly that kept that separated the the court of the Gentiles from from the interior ones reserved for Jews or it Most think it probably more likely was the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, the holiest place. The thick, thick woven curtain, impossible to rip, that separated, that housed, that that, that kept out the very presence of God from humans. Only one day a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest could go in after careful, careful preparation. The rest of the time this curtain stood as an utter division between humanity and God. It's very likely that curtain is ripped in two. Ripped in two, from top to bottom. It supplies another huge lens of meaning. About what did it mean that the Son of God died? i say at least two things. First, symbolizes the end of the old way of doing things. We don't need this curtain anymore. The old covenant, which was good for its time, very good, but it had come to an end. This temple is no longer where the presence of God is housed. We don't need the curtain. We don't need to keep people out. It's done. It's kind of a side note to that. This is also kind of serves as an act of judgment against the temple. Your time has come to an end. We remember Jesus' words leading up to this, all of his condemnations about how corrupt the temple leadership had come. It's time was done. The curtains ripped, we can move on. This is the closure of the old way of doing things. But secondly, and more profoundly than that, even is that that what this symbolizes that this barrier between God and man is done. It's removed. Jesus has accomplished this union of God and humanity, man and woman, that Jesus' atonement has accomplished. And this prefigures this idea that we're going to see later in the story of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. It's it's not just that the the temple is done, it's that God has made every person who would trust in the name of Jesus his temple. That's the meaning of the Holy Spirit coming to make his home. We don't need a physical building anymore. The temple is ripped. It's done. You are the temple. He's come closer to you than your own thoughts if you are in Christ. Everything that separated God from his beloved people has been cleared away in what Jesus has done on this cross. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. The curtain supplies a crucial layer of meaning to what just happened. And then we finally get the truth of the matter laid out in succinct terms in verse 39. When the centurion, Roman guard, Roman soldier, who stood facing him, saw that in this way Jesus breathed his last, He says, truly this man was the Son of God. You think of the failure of so many people to to, to either believe this, to see it and recognize it, or to act in accordance with it. The disciples who fled, the religious leaders who conspired, the crowds who frenzied, the governor who abdicated, the soldiers who mocked and tortured, the passerbys who jeered, the robbers who reviled. Funny enough, it's in the mouth of a Roman guard Who declares that truth of truth? He picks up the thesis statement. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Remember how the book started two years ago? The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark's entire story up to this point has been to to build a case for you that this Jesus we've been reading about, who loves people so well and who serves and is so humble, is so gracious, is so powerful, is so transcendent, is so mighty, this is the Son of God. He's not just some guy, he's not just some religious teacher, he's not just someone with interesting ideas, what Mark has been building to this entire story up and including through his death, this agonizing story here, he puts in the mouth of this Roman guard. The first man, probably if we were to take this as a sincere expression, the first person to believe the gospel on the other side of the cross, an enemy of God, says truly this was the son of God. And what a surprise. That the, isn't that just like Jesus, that the person who is attendant to his execution catches a glimpse and even finds grace right here in this moment? What that tells us, friends, right out of the gate is that it's not just for Jews, it's for the whole world. It's for the, it's for the Roman centurion who nailed this man to the cross. He too can find freedom and forgiveness. He too can have the veil torn and experience the power of the presence of God making his home within him. There is no one too far gone for the mercy of this Jesus. No one. Whoever you are, you're not too far gone. That's what this means. That's what this means. His grace is always 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 deeper. So we as we come to the near the end, we have, we have two more passages left in Mark. As we come to the the climax of the story that Mark is telling, we, we come back to the beginning. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the good news that this Jesus has done everything necessary to bring humanity home to its creator God. How did it happen? I don't know. We've thrown some ideas out there. Theologians are going to continue to write and debate, and those are important and deep things to think about curtain's torn. It's done. It's gone. He's done it all. In the words of Jesus in one of the other Gospels, it's finished. It's finished. There's nothing left to be done except receive what he has done. So as we conclude here today, what we see is that the power and grace of Jesus evidently melts this man, the centurion's heart of stone, and enables him to see what's really happening here. Some will look on this, this cross. Even in this same moment, this man sees the Son of God. Somehow, this man is the Son of God. I'm convinced of it. Others look at the cross and think, there's some criminal. He probably deserved it. Some idiot. Let's mock him some more. Look at him hanging naked there, bloody. Glad I'm not like him. Don't want anything to do with him. But others will see this, read this story in light of all that we've read before and they will see that's God. That is God suffering for my sins. Because of me, it's necessary that he is there doing this, suffering this way and he did it gladly. Others will see a self-giving love that we can hardly even wrap our minds around when we read this story. And this is the choice before all of us, Door of Hope. The choice the entire Gospel of Mark's been building toward. Which is it? Some guy who probably deserved it? Or the Son of God making atonement for the sins of the world? What does the cross mean? At the most basic level, we'll take John 3.16, a verse so common. Even if you hate Jesus, you know this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send this verse 17. We don't know this one as much. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The veil's been torn. Come into his loving presence. Believe. Let's pray.